This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Isabel Ayande, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. Now, Isabel, we spoke a few months ago, I think. I think it was sometime last year uh, via Zoom. But here we are today sitting in person and I cannot be, I, I am so excited and so nervous at the same time to be in your presence. Honestly, I feel very, very honoured. Thank you so much. I feel honoured. It is really lovely to see you. It really is. Now, I'm going to introduce you. Isabel was born in Peru of Chilean heritage and now resides, as I said, here in California, where we're recording. Her writing career has spanned four decades in which she has written 25 books that have sold over 75 million copies worldwide. She has won more than 60 awards in 15 countries and has been awarded 16 doctorates, including from Harvard University. In 2014, Barack Obama awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom, America's highest civilian honour. That gives me goosebumps, Isabel. To me too. When you say it, it gives me goosebumps. It was an extraordinary event. Oh, I can only imagine. All right, we'll talk about a bit about that later. Alongside writing, Isabel is passionate feminist and philanthropist. She founded the Isabel Allende Foundation in 1996 in remembrance of her daughter, Paula. She works tirelessly to support women's rights, economic independence and freedom from violence. Isabel's latest book, Violetta, is a sweeping story of one remarkable woman's hundred-year-long life set against a tumultuous century. Um, wow. Okay, so let's let's talk about. I, I just want to. I want to talk about Violetta because for me, and and you can correct me. It's fiction, I know, but for me, maybe at times it read a little bit like a memoir. You know, it started. I wanted to write about my mother who died shortly before the pandemic and who was very much like Violeta. She was that kind of, of personality and a beautiful, strong, talented woman. Uh, but her life was not extraordinary. And I was probably too close to her to be able to write a memoir. So I needed to fictionalize everything. And I created a character, Violeta, who as I said, resembles her in many ways. So there are episodes of my mother's life in the book and some of my life too. It's not exactly a memoir, but I have to say that, for example, uh, Violeta's love affairs, they are not exactly like mine, but similar. So, of course, there are some things that that are from my own life. Because you've written both fiction and nonfiction, haven't you, over the years? Yes, I have written... Oh, so much that I can't even remember. No. But I have several memoirs. Yeah. Tell me what you prefer writing. Oh, fiction, by by far. 
because I don't have to stick to the truth. Uh, with with memoir, I I'm not only exposing myself, but people around me who often get very angry. Yeah, uh, and also I have to stick to to the truth as much as possible. Of course, always in a memoir, truth is subjective. It's my view of things. Um, but in fiction, I'm like God. I can do whatever I want. Yeah, you can, can't you? Although we can do whatever I want. But do you know what I think with fiction? And not that I'm a writer, but I've spoken to many, many writers. As much as we don't like to admit it, there is always the self, the author in oh, fiction. absolutely. Yeah. I think that we are always between the lines. I mean, why do we choose to to write that story and no other story. Why those characters? And they have to say those things. It's because they're talking for us. Yeah. Uh, and uh, even the villains, everybody has some of the author. Yeah. Many years ago, and this must happen to you all the time, you know, when I tell people that I work in books or in publishing or whatever, people always ask me about story or they tell me what their last book is that they read or that they're writing a book. And one time I was sitting next to this man and he said to me, I'm writing a book. And I said, oh, congratulations, what are you writing? Well, I can't tell you, it's a secret. I said, oh, is it nonfiction? He said, no, it's fiction. And do you know <laughs> what dawned on me was no one person can write the same story. Even if I said to you, Isabel, um, can you please write about Cheryl getting off the ferry and waiting <laughs> and waiting for the Uber driver? It would be different to, say, another writer writing that same story. Of course. Yeah. Of course it would. But I understand why that man said it's a secret. Uh, I think that when we talk about the process, it dilutes the impulse, the, the inspiration in a way. I never talk about what I haven't finished because, first of all, it changes a lot during the process. And also because I don't want to waste any energy telling it to people. I just want to put everything in the page. Hmm. I think he was coming more from the thing that he didn't want to tell me so I wouldn't steal his idea. Oh, oh no, I don't think so. (laughs) Um, A few years back now, I saw you at the Adelaide Writers' Festival. Mm, Um, I remember that. Yes, wasn't that extraordinary? That trip to Australia was absolutely incredible. How many times have you been to Australia? A couple of times. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, somebody in the audience, and I just love this so much and it has sat with me forever, somebody in the audience asked you, when do you write, like, what's your writing style or when do you write? And you just responded, I don't know if you remember this, you just said nine to five. (laughs) It's true. It's a job, but it's a wonderful job. And now I will be 80 this year, and I was talking with my son 10 minutes ago about how much longer will I live and what do I want to do with the rest of the time that I am allotted, which might be very short. And I don't have any hobbies. I don't know how to have fun. I don't play anything. <laughs> what will I do except write? And I love it. Mm, tell, this is what I like to do. Yeah, you will tell stories forever. Yes. And now I have a new husband, so I try to be free by 6 o'clock. Right. To be with him and have, have dinner and a glass of wine. But if he wasn't around, I, I would be writing until midnight. So you still write from 9 to 5 or 9 to 6? Yeah, I do. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, I want to go right back, right back to where the passion for writing came from. I, I know we spoke about this a little bit in the last podcast, but I want to go back because we talked about feminism too back then, but you say that you were a feminist from, you know, the age of five or six, I think. And is that when your passion for story came? I don't think this it's related. I, I think that uh, it came from a lot of reading, yeah. Uh, as a child, there was no television in Chile. I was the only girl in a house of males, in the house of my grandfather. And I was not allowed to play in the streets like my brothers. There was nothing to do except read. And I started reading very early, around five. I must have been around five years old. And so my life was about the stories that I could read. And I probably was reading way advanced for my age because no one no one cared what I read. There was no guidance or censorship or anything. I don't think that they even bought books for me. I just read whatever I could get my hands on. And the, the love of, of listening to stories probably created the love of telling them. And according to my stepfather, I was always a good storyteller that if, let's say that we all saw an accident in the street, I could tell it like 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 a novel, like a long story, mm. uh, while everybody else said, oh, there was an accident and two, two cars crashed and that was it. No, for me it was who was in the car, what happened, why, what will happen after, uh, what if... Mm. Mm. Who was crying? What yeah. color was the car? <laughs> <laughs> All that, you know. And, yeah. But I never thought I would be a writer. Why? Because there were no role models. Yeah. Uh, the, the only role models for women at the time, remember, this is the 40s and 50s, mm-hmm. were some English spinsters who had committed suicide. No, the, the the writers around me were all male, the boom of Latin American literature, not one feminine voice. No. Not because women were not writing, but because they were systematically silenced and ignored. Mm. And when did you start thinking that you're going to be a writer? Never. When I, when I started The House of the Spirits, I had no idea what I was doing. I had mm. never read a book review in my life. Mm. I didn't know anything about the book industry. I had no idea how you you publish a book, and it wasn't my intention to publish anything. I just wanted to tell something that I didn't know what it was. And I wrote like in a trance without any any idea of what I was doing or any plan. J- just telling and telling. It was an avalanche of stories and anecdotes and memories and experiences. Everything was there, and people that I had known. And uh, when the book was finished... It didn't have any shape in my eyes. It didn't look like a novel. It didn't look like a memoir. It didn't look like a chronology of the family. What was it? And that was the House of the Spirits. Mm. And I have never again been able to write with that innocence, with that ignorance that was so refreshing. Mm. A lot of us, a lot of authors say that about their first book. You were working as a journalist at the time, is that right? No, I was. I had been working as a journalist in Chile. But yeah. when I left my country, I couldn't find a job as a journalist in Venezuela. So for many, many years, until I could write The House of the Spirits, I couldn't write anything. I was doing all sorts of odd jobs to make a living and support my kids. 
And then eventually I found a job administering a school. And mm. I did that for four years and a half. Mm. So you write in Spanish? Yeah, only yeah. in Sp- Well, I can write nonfiction in English. And actually, um, The Soul of a Woman, I wrote with both English and Spanish on the, on the screen. So I would write a sentence in Spanish and a sentence in English. Mm. I, I want to talk about that. Um, have you worked... Tell me the process of, of translation. So when you write in Spanish, and I'm just trying to work this out myself. So when you write in Spanish... It has a, a, you know, it has a voice. It has your voice. It has a rhythm. You've got a particular style about your writing. When you read the translation, do you go back and read the English translation? Yes, uh, I work closely with the English translator only because uh, I can't read. I mean, I I can read French, but I can't. I could not work with the translator. I mean, it would be impossible. Mm. I can read Italian, but I couldn't work with the translator either. Mm. But I do with the, with English, and um, right now, what what happened with Violeta is that I could compare the English with the Spanish, and I could somehow correct things in Spanish because the translator picked it up in English. Oh wow! Yeah, wow! And do you think, like talking about both languages and talking about story? Because you know, for many years when I was young, I was you know I was reading your books, I was reading uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. The translation never even entered my mind. You know, I was just reading them in English. But when you go back, uh, I guess do you does it feel very much like your voice, the same story? Uh, language is like blood. Yeah, it's, it's cultural. It's yeah. personal. It's it it, it is so distinctive it's your voice and um, there are certain things that are hard to translate humor for example yeah because humor doesn't work the same everywhere what is funny in in chile is politically incorrect in the united states you cannot say that other things <laughs> i remember when i was working with margaret sawyer peden who um, was my translator for almost 19 books we we really had a, a almost a psychic connection. And sometimes she would call me and say, you know what, I have to tone this down a little bit. Because I would have a love scene, let's say. In Spanish it works because we have a whole language for, for love and romance and, and, and music for, for romance and everything. But in English it sounds suspicious, tacky. <laughs> <laughs> she had to tone it down, and and I I understand that because, and, and I think that now that I speak better English than at the beginning, I I get it more when when it, it doesn't work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. 
I was speaking to an Australian author, Petty Carey, who's lived in New York for a very long time, over 20 years, I think, and he writes quintessentially Australian books. Right? And, you know, I don't know how often he comes to Australia, but not that often. And I wonder for a writer when, and, and a bit like yourself, I guess, I mean, do you write stories of your homeland, of what you know, because that is what you think and that is what you dream? I I think that I have Chile inside me, but it's not the real Chile. No. No, it's like an invented country, and I wrote a book about that. Because when I go back, I recognize a few things about the Chilean temperament, let's say, the character of, of a nation. But... Everything has changed a lot, and I don't fit in anymore there, as I don't fit in here either. I will always be a foreigner everywhere, which is fine. For a writer, it's a good thing. So when you ask me about the country that I write about, it's what I remember mostly, but I've been going to Chile often since 1989 when we had democracy again in Chile. I've been going regularly And I'm in touch with my country permanently. But if I write a book like Violeta, which happens in the 20th century, when I was there, Mm. uh, much of what happened there, I witnessed it. Mm. And and also, I have my mother's letters. And my mother, the the character is my mother, whose life I know completely. I mean, Mm. I know my mother's life better than mine. Mm. She would write to me every single day. And not only about herself, but about what was happening around her. So uh, I, I have been aware of how Chile has changed and how Chile is. But when in a book like Violeta, um, especially those parts in which she's in the South, she's in a rural community, I am very familiar with that. Mm. My parents, so I'm Lebanese-Australian. Um, I was born in Australia, but my parents came out, I think it was in the 50s, and, and, you know, they brought us up as Lebanese-Australian, as, as you would have had the same uh, similar experience. So when I finally went back to Lebanon as an adult, you know, the language I was speaking was completely different to what they were speaking. You know, it was, it, I really felt like I wasn't Lebanese, I wasn't Australian, I was this other thing mm-hmm. that really was Lebanon 50 years ago or, you know. Exactly. Because places change and they move on. But, you know, I have uh, a couple of friends, three friends, that have lived always in Chile. Yeah. And we've been friends for half a century. We have grown in parallel lines. So when we meet, it is as if no time has gone by. And we are totally tuned to, to each other's lives and and what the and to the events of of, of the world, mm. the way of thinking, the, the in politics, in in everything. Mm. So um, I'm not so far off. Mm-hmm. Would you do? You, would you identify more? How long have you lived in the United States? Oof, yes. since 1987. I mean, yes. a long, long time. But if you ask me, what are you? I would say Chilean. Yeah. And if if I am in Chile I don't sound very Chilean. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um I was always when I grew up I was always Lebanese. Always my parents were Lebanese, I was Lebanese. You know, and I, I we it was hard, you know, Australia could, you know, Sydney was a little racist and and you know we we definitely um 
you know, weren't that accepted to start with, for sure. Um, but when I went to Lebanon as an adult and I saw my grandmother and, you know, I was just, it was magic to, to actually be there. But she took me around to her neighbour and she said, this is my granddaughter, Cheryl. She's Australian. Mm-hmm. And I started to cry. Oh, <laughs> how old were you? I would have been about 20, 25, mm-hmm. and I could not identify as being mm-hmm. Australian. Well, but she didn't recognise me as being Lebanese. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? And, and, and only us can experience, people that have had that experience, know how that feels. I have been displaced all my life. Uh, I, w- I was born in Peru, then very, I was three years old when we moved to Chile. Then my mother married a diplomat. We traveled with him to different destinations. And then I became a political refugee and then an immigrant. So I've, I've always been uprooted from the, and I have started from scratch several times. For me, it's very easy to leave everything behind. I'm not attached to things. To I'm attached to few people but not to places. Mm. So um, that that gives me a sort of freedom to move around in, in my imagination from one country to the other to write about different places. And I realize that I end up writing about many of the places where I have been because a sense of place is very important in my writing. Mm. So it's, it's, it's ironic mm. that I am displaced and yet a sense of place is so essential. But maybe that's why it is, because you're undisclosed. Be. Yeah. Now, I know that, that you're not Violetta in this book, but you just told me that you're turning 80 this year. Do you, the reflection of a body of work, the reflection of a life, you've said you've lived in many countries, you know, you've suffered grief, you've been writing, you've met Barack Obama. Do you start to, to think about that more now? No. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, first of all, I'm not a very reflective person. I'm always imagining things. So I mean, in another world, I don't uh, analyze myself. I don't look at my own navel and I don't look back at my life much. The other day talking with my son, I said, you know, Nico, I look back and there are a few, very few things that I regret. Maybe I have forgotten most of my mistakes, but there are very few that I can remember and I regret. And of all the losses that I have had, the only one that I can really remember is my daughter yeah, and then now my mother. Mm. But all the other losses, the loss of my country, the loss of so many friends, of so many pets that I adored, they, they, they are like... Um, how can I say that it, everything blends together into this sort of cloud that is the past? Mm-hmm. That is not. It, I don't remember much, but maybe because I have written memoirs, so I know that the essential stuff, the highlights and the lowlights, are in those memoirs. So I don't need to remember them. They're already there. <laughs> you take them <laughs> yeah. out of your memory. I can't forget them. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to. Um, I still want to talk a little bit about aging. I, I'm, I'm, you know, 57 now, and I look at. Say I'm I'm seeing uh, an interaction between 30-year-olds or, you know, I'm seeing, uh, I'm hearing somebody in their 40s talking. And not that I would ever say this, but one of the feelings that I get is that I have learnt so much since then. 
right? Mm-hmm. When I'm observing younger people, you know, I, I love it and I love them and I love them for their youth and what they're up to. But I, I do pull back and think, wow, I do feel wiser in a way. I, I know that's a cliche, but I do feel as though that I've lived, you know, and I've learnt a lot, you know, and I'm still learning, of course. Is that how you feel? Yeah, I, I feel that I have learned a lot, but I don't feel any wiser. Uh, yeah, because age doesn't make you any any wiser. Age makes you more of what you already are. So if 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 you are, I mean, I mean, if you are an angry person, why would you be kind in your old age? It doesn't happen that way. You have to be training all your life for the person you will be as an old person. And when I ask myself, what am I training for? I'm training to be someone generous, if possible passionate about life out there, mm. out there. I don't want to turn inside and, and, and start shriveling. I want to expand mm. and give away everything I have, the stories, money, uh, objects, time, everything. Give it away mm. because I can't take anything with me. Mm. And I am very aware of the time I have, that I don't have much time left. So this is the time to give away everything. And it's a wonderful feeling of freedom. Mm. Mm. I agree. I agree. It's just that sometimes I look at somebody who's 30 and I think I get a little bit embarrassed sometimes about my behavior back then, you know, that, oh God. I wish I'd never said, I mean, I don't have a lot of regrets, but sometimes I think I was a little foolish and I think I'm less foolish as I get older. I'm probably sit back more. I probably, yeah, but yeah. it has to do with hormones, I'm sure. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yes. Yes. because we do so much, I mean, so much stuff is done because we are, it's, it's out of impulse, the hormones, the instinct, the biological clock, whatever it is. Yeah. And then as you get older, at my age, I mean, I have way less hormones than you have. So probably I will make less mistakes than you do, but yeah. only because of that. <laughs> I, You know, now that I am recently married, I see how different my relationship with my husband is from the other relationships that I have had in my life. And it's because we're both 80. Yes. I mean, so we we don't... We don't need many of the things we needed as as a young as, mm. as a yo- younger people. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree with that totally. I was only thinking that too in regards to myself. You know, a lot of, um, you know, I'm a lot more comfortable at this age than I was. You know, blah blah blah. And I was thinking about that the other day, and I thought, you know, it's good that everything came to me late because I don't know if I would have appreciated it when <laughs> I was younger. <laughs> I don't know. Talk to me about um, receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I mean, we've got to touch on that a little bit. I mean, he is my crush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, is he your crush? Of course, of <laughs> course. So uh, we went to the White House with my family, mm-hmm. and I had a picture taken between uh, Barack Obama and Michelle. And they are both very, very tall and thin people. Is he tall? Very tall. Right. And in the, I am five feet tall, so anybody is very tall from my perspective. Yeah. But in the picture, unless they would have kneeled, we would have not been all together in the picture. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I remember that vividly. 
it was not the first time that I had been in the White House. I had been before with the Clintons. And what what was lovely was that the dog was there and family pictures. Uh, on in, in the, the rooms are by color in the White House, so the blue room, the red room, the green room, and everything is green in the green room. Uh, and they have photographs of the family, so that was very nice. And then uh, uh, the other thing that was touching is that after the ceremony was over, everybody was supposed to leave, but the Hispanic press was there for me. So there was uh, press from Latin America and from Spain, so I had to stay for much longer than the rest of the guests, which was sort of awkward. But when it was done, I was invited to, to have a snack or a, or a, a meal after with the staff. And oh, Barack wow. Obama was there with the staff. And, and it was just lovely to see the interaction, how, how easy everything was, how familiar. Mm-hmm. The, the, also the fact that that Barack was black when I, when I was in um, in in the White House before only the only the domestic staff was were, were people of color mm-hmm. the gardeners and the and the and the people who served the tables and that was it mm-hmm. and this time half of the of the guests and were black mm-hmm. so it was it was very interesting mm-hmm. and wonderful mm-hmm. do you look back at that and think you know, how did I get there? You know, I think I, I was in, invited or given the Medal of Freedom because it was a moment in which there was a lot of controversy about the Hispanic presence in the United States, immigration. And uh, maybe as a way of telling the community that we were seen, I was selected. I, I don't know, really. Mm. Although they're both good readers. Oh, yeah. They, they said they had read my books, but they had been briefed, probably. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do think, though, he's always got a book in his hand. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He's, yeah definitely. I mean, wow, what an accolade. Um, you deserve it. You're going to keep writing, obviously, because you've got nothing else to do, you told me. <laughs> Is that right? Are you working on a new project? Of course. I, I the, And the pandemic has been good for me because it, it has given me time, silence and solitude, which is what every writer or creator of anything needs. Mm. And I never had it so abundantly before because I was always pulled in different directions, traveling, lecturing, uh, book tours, you name it. Mm. And now that I have had time, I wrote uh, The Soul of a Woman, Violeta, another novel that is being translated right now. And another one that I just started on January 8th. Mm. So yeah. it's a lot. Yeah, so I can see you don't sleep much. But <laughs> No, I do sleep. That's the thing. You? I yeah. sleep like a baby. Oh, yeah. So do I. I sleep, <laughs> I sleep eight hours, eight or nine hours, and I, yeah. I often think that's why I don't get much done. But anyway, <laughs> do you know what I'm reflecting on you? And then I was thinking about you a lot, and I was thinking about your body of work, because I started as a bookseller when the first book came out, mm. right? And you didn't pigeonhole yourself into a genre. You have just always written what you wanted to write. Well, when I wrote The House of the Spirits, it was such a sudden success, which is very rare for a new voice, a new novel, a new author, that uh, many people including my agent and other people, thought that I was going to keep on writing that kind of book. Yeah. 
But my second book is completely different. Completely. Completely different. And uh, I like the challenge of something new. However, 40 years later, people have noticed or have said that Violeta has several analogies to the House of the Spirits. Mm -hmm. It's the same period, the Valle family. Um, it's the same political and social events. It, it has a lot of the same epic family saga mm -hmm. flair. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't thinking of that when I wrote it, but maybe I mm. went back to it without knowing. I just think it's such an authentic body of work. And, you know, I guess uh, it's it hasn't finished. You well, know, every story has a way of being it. told. Yeah. You, you, and, and often that's the hardest part. And it takes me two, three weeks of sometimes yeah. a month or more to find that way of telling a particular story. I'm stuck right now with a book in which I have all the information because I have researched like crazy and I can't find the way of telling it. Yeah, it's, wow. how, what is the angle? What is the thread? What is the tone? Which one is the narrative voice? Yeah, wow. and, and to get once I get that, then it starts to flow, and I let myself go with the with the flow. So all that has to come here before you start writing. No, it depends, because often I, on January eighth, I just start, and I have nothing in my head. But I start because I need need to open, yeah, open a page. Let's yes. say yes, and and then then I, I go. I find myself in a dead end. I go back with Violeta. It w I started it in third person. Yeah. And then I was I had already written like a chapter when I thought, why would a hundred-year-old woman who is dying tell her story? Who, why would she do that? She would be preparing for death, not telling her story, unless she's telling it to someone, someone that she wants that person to remember her. Mm. Because that's what my mother would have done. Mm -hmm. So, so then I said she would be talking in first person, of course. Of so course I went would. back and read, redid the whole thing. Yeah. I did the same with, long time ago with Eva Luna, my third book. Yes. It was in third person, and then I thought this is the story of a storyteller who is telling a story. It's way three times removed from the reader. Yeah. I have to get. Her voice, not yes. me telling about her, she telling about something else. Yes. She has to be telling and I have to remove myself. But that took me, I mean, I had finished the book when I realized that it wasn't working. And, and you had I, to go back. And I went back and redo it. But, redid it. But it's easy because, because you already have the whole book. The thing is that in, a first, in first person, the, the narrator only knows what... That per, the, what, what that, the narrator knows. Yeah. What the narrator knows. So I cannot be in the minds of anybody else. I have to be only in the mind and the experience of the narrator. Yeah. And that limits the book a lot. Yeah. Well. Isabella Riande, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. 
All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.